Jennifer, welcome to the show. Hi, John. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me as a guest on your podcast. Yeah, terrific. It is so, so good to hear from you. And, you know, I've been really looking forward to this conversation. So if you don't mind, we're just going to dive right in. Is that okay? That sounds perfect. Okay. So for our listeners who don't know, I've known Jennifer for about, I guess, almost a decade now or or pretty close to it. Uh, You are a, you identify as a woman. You're a woman of color. You're a mother. You're a coach and an entrepreneur and lots of other things. And so when I think about me, right, as a older, middle-aged white male, what do people like me need to know about being the best possible ally for anyone who is not a white, middle-aged male in society? What do you think? Great. Thank you, John. Again, just for this platform that you have and allowing me to be able to share my experiences and thoughts here today, particularly around this wonderful and important topic on allyship. So thank you again. So I was um, thinking about this topic a lot lately because recently I was leading a group coaching session on the topic of allyship to leaders within an organization when I began to reflect on my own past corporate career prior to me becoming a coach. I wondered how my career trajectory might have been different if I had received proper allyship and support during that time. And this reflection led me to contemplate my own identity and sense of belonging in my life and in my career. And I do believe I resonate with the experiences of many first-generation Asian Americans and many first-generation immigrants in the U.S. And if that's okay with you, John, I would love to kind of just walk your listeners through that journey of how I was raised and my thought process as we go into this question that you have, which is wonderful. How can you be a better ally? Yeah, wonderful. Listen, I think that is really, really very relevant context. And I I know that I would certainly love to hear it. And I know many people in the audience would love to hear it as well. So please go right ahead. Thank you, John. So yes, so this, (laughs) this coming to America story has probably been heard before, but this was truly my upbringing. Uh, My parents and I were refugees of the Vietnam War. We immigrated to the U.S. in 1980, uh, many years ago. (laughs) Uh, But during my formative years, my parents really stressed the importance of assimilating into the American culture. I even changed my name and I stopped using our ethnic language, Mm -hmm. which was Chinese Vietnamese. Yet, they held on to certain aspects of their Asian culture and beliefs, and that particularly uh, was related to respect. These beliefs, you know, really manifested as obedience, deference to authority, and conformity. They saw controlling me as their expression of love. And control was all they really did have after coming to America, And what I mean by control is not so much in a negative light, but it was more of a survival mechanism, right? There was just no time for feelings or fun. They had to work. So my parents worked labor-intensive jobs to provide for our family, and we were poor in the beginning. 
And their primary goal was to just ensure my college education and that pursuit of a professional career. As a result, it it actually did work. Um, (laughs) I followed a path, right, guided by obedience, authority, and conformity. And it led me to complete both my undergraduate and MBA studies at the George Washington University in D.C. And then subsequently, I pursued professional roles that I felt made my parents proud. Um, But I really didn't know anything else as choices. So here I am growing up with not much intentionality to crafting who I am and who I want to be. I just know that this was truly a contributing factor to the imposter syndrome I felt in my corporate career. And so just not having that feeling of never truly feeling like I belonged in any of my corporate roles, especially as I advanced, I never thought I was the right person to do the job which are attributes to having imposter syndrome, that intellectual self-doubt that someone will discover I'm a fake and I really don't deserve to be here. So my belief system growing up definitely contributed to my inability to advocate for myself. And then, you know, just thinking back as well, when, you know, one of the things that as again, and I apologize, I'm recovering from, you know, all of these illnesses that's been going around. So I definitely caught a cold from my kids. So hopefully I can make it through this. You can make it. I um, am definitely um, excited to be here. So, um, you know, just thinking back about that time in my corporate role, that lack of intentionality, as I mentioned, I still was able to advance, right, within my organization. What I'm reflecting back on is that I could have been more strategic in investing in my efforts. I I directed my talents towards leaders who advocated for me, but I neglected those who could genuinely nurture my growth and ultimately had the power to sponsor me and propel me to an executive role. Thus, I didn't identify the right sponsors who could highlight and validate my strengths provide better opportunities, and accelerate my career progression. I merely toiled diligently, worked hard, (laughs) made lots of assumptions to what was needed to get promoted, and just remained really steadfast up the career ladder. It was very lonely and isolating experience when I think back, which, of course, brings me back to our topic today around allyship and belonging. You know, um, as a as a professional leadership coach as well for the past five years and still hearing it today, despite the extensive diversity and inclusion efforts within companies, I often come across clients who, especially women and people of color, struggle with imposter syndrome, self-doubt, and or experiencing discrimination or exclusion in their positions or teams. And this was actually the driving force behind one of my programs called the Executive Women of Color Accelerate Programs. Um, I personally encountered many of the mental and environmental obstacles that hindered my progress towards career advancement goals, especially as a female and a person of color, a double challenge. Um, And this program centers around my um, framework called NEC. And that's also short for my company name, the Nielsen Executive Coaching LLC. So the N stands for navigating one's career. 
The E stands for elevating one's brand, and the C stands for co-creating your best work and life. And during my client's journey through the program, we delve into this topic of seeking out allies and effectively leveraging their support during my co-create phase. And, and this is why I talk about this in my program is because we all need more allies. Thank you so much for sharing your story. It, it really just, there's so much uh, feeling and emotion there. And I, I just have a, you know, as you were sharing that, I had just an overwhelming sense of gratitude for my own upbringing. Uh, I'm curious, though, what do you see as the difference between a sponsor and an ally? Or, or is there a difference in, in your mind? Yes, very good question. <clears throat> well, to me, an ally can show up as a sponsor. Okay. So it's one of the ways they can help somebody is through their position within their organization. If they're in a, a higher enough position, they probably do have certain advantages that someone else in a lower level, either by title or experience, may not have. So those are really great ways of showing and demonstrating allyship in the workplace is through sponsoring someone with less advantage. What does a good sponsor look like? What are some of the things that they do or ways that they interact with their sponsee or the person that they are uh, serving in that capacity? Those are great questions, John. Thinking back on this too, um, <clears throat> in my own previous corporate experience, there were only two East Asian and Pacific Island female executives among over a thousand professionals in the business unit I was part of. And I found myself wishing that they had initiated contact or taken a moment to pull me aside and said, hey, Jennifer, I know you're working hard, but that's not the way you're going to reach the executive level here. So I, I really yearned for their seasoned advice on effective networking and just general encouragement to pursue roles that probably better aligned with my abilities as well. Um, and then of course I could have sought them out as well. I could have been more open and vulnerable about my insecurities and performance. However, my introversion kept telling me that I was wasting their time by talking to me. Of course, this thought now thinking about it was rather silly, but back then I genuinely believed it. And it stemmed again from my upbringing. Keep your head down, work hard, do as you're told, don't challenge things, just appreciate what you have, which was a good title and a good salary. So I was successful and I did have advocates, but I think I just channeled my energy towards advocates that I thought, okay, they believed in me, but they weren't necessarily the people who could sponsor me. Um, and so I just felt like still not feeling I belonged in the organization, suffering from imposter syndrome. And here I could have also asked for more help, but I didn't. So it's it's hard for someone who is trying to rise to the top within an organization 
not knowing who they could trust or speak to. Yeah. You know, as you're describing all of that, I, I guess what I keep thinking about is myself, uh, but again, sort of as an archetype, and, and that's how I'd like to position it, sort of, I, I'm kind of an archetype of what a lot of people see as, quote unquote, the problem, you know, a a, a upper middle-aged white male who has had a lot of privilege. And, you know, I, I think most people don't understand the distinction between having trouble in your life and also having privilege that both of those things can coexist. And, you know, I know that there are a lot of people out there who really in their heart, they want to do the right thing. They want to be uh, cognizant and observant and be able to help, but struggle to do that. So are there some practical things that you believe either that you either believe today make a difference or that you would like to have seen during your time kind of going up through the corporate world that might have helped or made a difference in your career? Definitely, definitely. <clears throat> I would say that those who need allies uh, may not explicitly express sentiments like, I expire for a career advancement, or they might not say, I don't believe I fit in this role, or they might not even say, I need to be paid more for the responsibilities that I own. So for your listeners who are in a position to be allies, I would say, you know, please don't allow silence from someone who is deserving to hinder you from sh showing care, right? Just being attentive, offering support to those in less advantageous roles. And I also think this doesn't necessitate a significant time investment. It's it's more about conveying both verbally and non-verbally that you genuinely are available and that you've created this safe space for individuals to approach you and you can come to them. And I, I don't think that people um, don't want to be allies. I do believe most people do want to be an ally, but they may be scared to do it or not sure how to do it. So my guidance is to just educate oneself is important, right? Finding out ways it's been successful on a team or a group where allyship did create higher performers or happier workers. I think it always starts with like self-awareness and, and education. Do you have any resources or things that you feel like are, are helpful either you know, TED Talks or books or podcasts, uh, in, in addition to this one, of course, that <laughs> so, so that people can begin that process. If they have an idea that, you know, I would like to be an ally, I'd like to be seen as an ally and thought of in that way, but they don't really know exactly where to begin. What would be your advice to someone like that? Absolutely. Um, I really appreciate the Sheryl um, Sandberg's organization called leanin.org. Okay. And her uh, organization does a lot of actually free materials to companies who would like to invest more in diversity and inclusion efforts. And they have a whole learning series on allyship. And I really, and I will definitely share the link 
So you can put in your show notes to the leanin.org's website to learn more about taking a self-guided course on allyship. But it's got a lot of short videos on like why allyship um, is important within an organization, how there's still more work to be done through a lot of statistics and research they've done. Um, And then they also have a lot of offerings around practical uh, tips for those who do definitely want to show up and do better when it when it comes to to allyship. I really, really appreciate that. Other of my colleagues have experienced this as well, and that is, you know, how to start talking about these topics. My belief is, and, and, and I just know for myself, I know it feels awkward oftentimes having these types of conversations with people. And a lot of that is just because of, you know, cultural sorts of things uh, on, on my end. But how should people start just talking about these sorts of issues if they're afraid, for example, that they'll say the wrong thing or maybe they will inadvertently do something or say something that might be offensive. And I think that there are a lot of people, I I take that back. I don't know that there are a lot of people. I know that a number of people that I uh, work with and have, have spoken with over the years have that concern, right? Yeah. You know, I, Oftentimes, I'm afraid to say something or broach a topic because I don't know exactly how to start. So what should I be considering? What should other people who find themselves in that place, what should we be considering uh, around that topic? I I love that, John. So where to start? I would say, one, listening to these conversations where it's taking place, right? Like right here, right now, we're having this amazing discussion and I, again, I really appreciate just being able to share my past experience. Um, and this is my experience, right? Um, and so I would say that there will always be someone experiencing some sort of discrimination, real or perceived, or they may just be feeling unable to advocate or speak up for themselves. So regardless of the truth, it's it's their reality, and that's what just truly matters. So listening is a great way to just start like being attentive like is there something going on with a, a co-worker or a colleague or a direct report what is going on just having that listening and attentiveness is a great way to just begin allyship steps and i also feel like allyship also extends beyond private interactions Um, Allyship to me is more than just mentorship because I know I had mentors and actually my best mentors were white males. They were my best mentors, but I don't know if that's enough. Um, I do think it needs to also be one to many instances as well. So if they have the capacity, and again, you mentioned privilege, um, it should encompass actions that can amplify an individual's visibility, acknowledge their accomplishments in team settings, or present them with opportunities for growth through not just stretch projects, but stretch projects that align with that person's abilities and strengths. So you definitely need to be aware of what the person's strengths are. It, and I know, like, of course, you pr- people probably heard about these action steps they can take to be better allies. 
Um, but I just don't hear it happening enough. I still have more factual examples of when allyship isn't working effectively than when it is. So, so who knows? I, I may still be in my corporate role today if I had the right ally or sponsor, just someone who believed in me, even if I didn't believe in myself. Um, so we, we, I don't know because <laughs> I'm wondering like, oh, would I still be in my corporate role today if I just had someone who knew that I was suffering silently through this imposter syndrome? So, after, you know, having had this conversation, it, one of the things that's coming up for me is that I also, in many ways, suffer from imposter syndrome, uh, you know, oftentimes feeling like I. Uh, if you only knew what's going on inside this brain, then you wouldn't think so highly of me. And, you know, who am I to be doing this or that? And, and that whole shtick. Uh, and, and I don't mean to minimize it, but, you know, there's a, there are a lot of elements of that that I suffer from. And, and certainly your imposter syndrome comes from somewhere else. Right? It, mm -hmm. it came to you in a different way. Yet, despite all of our differences, right, we have that in common. And so having said that, would it be fair to say, and please feel free to push back on me here, would it be fair to say that if we look hard enough and listen hard enough, we'll probably find that we have more similarities than we have differences, not that the differences aren't important and, and shouldn't be addressed, but that there's far more that we have in common than we have different. What do you think about that? I do think that it's right. We, I, I really appreciate John that you are sharing here that you also have elements of imposter syndrome and that's a relief because <laughs> I, you know, when it's within ourselves, cause we, we always think from ourselves, we think we're the only ones. Of course. I truly felt like I was the only one that didn't feel like they were in the right roles. I, get I was that. I made it work. I was successful. Again, I was going up and advancing. I just did not enjoy the journey and questioning my abilities all along the way. So it was complete isolation and again, just not really understanding my true contributions because of my mental, you know, resistance to what's happening. And my mind is simply this all along the way, although I doubted myself and wondered if other people were crazy for having such faith and confidence in me, I continued to get that positive reinforcement. You know, people would say, you know, it would give me that positive feedback, et cetera. You know, and I heard it from people who looked and sounded a lot like me. And so that really did help a lot in that. And so I can, you know, as you're describing your experience, it certainly feels a lot more isolating I guess, and, and completely different from the experience that I have. So again, kind of back to my premise here, which is you and I being vastly different people 
share this one experience, although it has been manifested in, in various ways and we've experienced it in different ways, but at its core, we still share that feeling or sentiment about not being good enough in some ways. That's right. You know, at the end of the day, we all crave connection and seek relationships. We all desire to have a sense of belonging, either from our work or from our family and friends or our community. And that right. craving is um, is really hard when you think it's lacking as well. So I, I definitely think for those who struggle with self-love, because I know your framework encompasses love, John. Yes. I really wished I had possessed the language back then to advocate for myself during my 18-year tenure in the corporate world. Um, and I do think, unfortunately or fortunately, <laughs> my upbringing did enforce silence because love was synonymous with obedience, authority, and conformity. I really didn't know anything else. So sharing these thoughts I have today, my intention really is just to emphasize that while I might have endured my struggles silently, there are others in the workplace going through similar experiences. I'm sure there's others out there who are thinking, do I truly know who I am? Do I need to alter who I am? Should I conceal my identity to conform? Are these my career goals or someone else's? What are my goals? <laughs> so there's just so much to for us to have to manage. But how good would it be for just someone who can pull me aside? Again, that one leader pulled me inside and said, hey, working hard is not going to get you to the next level, my dear. <laughs> I, I really wanted someone to tell me that mm. <laughs> at the time. Um, so ally, being an ally and allyship is definitely an active word. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a noun. It's, it's a verb. Uh, I agree. Um, and again, it's, and I think back to the, when you said, if people are scared to be an ally because they don't want to mess up, I also don't think it means that we're asking people to be social justice activists either. We're just saying, you know, it just means like, how can you do, how can you just better leverage your position and role and inherent privileges to help someone else because of your higher access or networks and influences to just level the playing field a little bit. Right. You know, one of the things that you mentioned early on in our conversation was when you first arrived at your corporate role, one of the things you noticed was that you didn't see any people who looked like you. You didn't say it exactly that way, but that was what I took away from it. And, you know, I've heard that expression in various forms and never really appreciated its full impact until you kind of shared your experience with that. And it made me think, you know, what if I went to work somewhere for one of my first roles out of university or, or whatever, and no one there looked like me or, or I didn't feel like I could relate with anyone there and just sort of the energy it might take to try to fit in and try to conform and and hide who I am and not be myself and just it feels really exhausting and so I, I just what I want to say is thank you for giving me a newfound appreciation for for what that feels like 
Yes, thank you, John. And <clears throat> absolutely, that's exactly why I was only highlighting the two, again, East Asian and Pacific Island females of, of a huge organization. You're right. <laughs> um, so those were the only two that I could aspire to that did look like me. Yet my introversion, and we, and, and that's a different conversation, nature and nurture, um, part of it, my introversion, I really didn't think they would care to be a sponsor. Yeah. And who knows, right? I What it would have looked like had I broken past that introversion and been more vulnerable to them. Absolutely. You know, I wonder if you mentioned a couple of different times, uh, when you're talking about your parents a little bit earlier, you mentioned that part of their language of love was, you know, teaching respect. Uh, and you now you have your own business and your own enterprise and uh, your own programmatic uh, offerings that you're doing. So I'm just curious, what is it that you love about your life today? Oh, absolutely. I would say that, um, you know, I... I'm still working on bridging that gap between having or depending on others for love and moving towards self-love, as I mentioned. And it's a it's a place that I continue to work on this idea of self-love. And I really want to ensure that others know they're not alone, particularly if they're feeling this way, especially if they're first-generation um, immigrants. Because a lot of immigrant parents were all about working hard. They, they grew up during a different time. We, don't ha we have so much luxury being in the U.S. That's, being in the U.S. is a privilege in itself. Um, there's things that my parents had to worry about because they escaped war to come to the U.S. for a better life that I don't have to worry about today. Um, but I do grapple still with my identity and sense of belonging, particularly when it does concern my cultural background. You know, I question, am I Asian or am I American? <laughs> And, and that feeling of not truly fitting in anywhere is a real complex emotion that I find truly challenging to fully comprehend. Because at the end of the day, that essence of human existence centers around longing to be part of a community or to belong to something. So I would say that I'm, you know, teaching my kids to use their voice. Mm -hmm. I don't use the word. I have two boys, by the way. Um, and with my boys, I used to say, you're a good boy, <laughs> but I have to understand myself. What do, what do I mean by that? And what I used to mean by that is obedience. If they obeyed me, they're good. And I'm trying to unravel that connection. So they don't think good equals obedience. I, I do want them to challenge me. Actually, I <laughs> welcome them to challenge my thoughts because that's how they're going to 
be an advocate for themselves. Well, I have I have no idea if this is true or not, but based on my experience raising two boys, there will come a day when they will uh, be doing a little bit more challenging than probably they're doing right now. Well, I have a 13-year-old, so right now, everything I do is just embarrassing. So uh, <laughs> I, I, nothing I, I can do is love anymore. It's just everything I do is wrong, um, but I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. Yeah. Well, I I really appreciate the the segue to to self love and that you're right. It it is it, you know all of the things we've been talking about are extraordinarily complex you know emotions and, and feelings. And like you, I shy away from in, in some ways this idea of loving myself or 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 focusing my energy and the love that I have for the work that I do and for other people inwardly, uh, because sometimes that can be a little bit of a scary and confusing place. And so I really appreciate you, you bringing that up because that is something that I think a lot of us, if we spent just a little bit more time there, I don't know, maybe the world would be a bit of a better place. Yes. And, and also hope that we can start sharing more stories of how we're all supporting each other and uplifting each other and helping each other out. I think we, we, again, as I said, still hear stories of it not happening, but it'd be so much better to flip that and share more openly stories of when it is happening and happening effectively. Cause at the end of the day, we can all do better to show love and show that everyone matters and everyone belongs in wherever they are. Right. So that's really just the whole, to me, that activeness of allyship is I can be an ally as well. Like we're all able to be allies. It's just, it takes intentionality. It takes just being attentive and just listening to someone that may be all they need as well. So again, it's not a lot of effort. It doesn't have to be scary. It just has to be probably authentic within yourself that you also believe it's important to be inclusive and invest in belonging in the workplace. Well, Jennifer, thank you for such practical advice and and a topic that my belief is we need to continue to talk about, uh, on an ongoing basis. What do you think? Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I'd like to just take this opportunity to invite you back at some point in the not too distant future, if you'd like to come back and perhaps between now and then we could both be mining for a, a couple of big success stories around allyship. I would love that opportunity. Yeah, it would be great. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jennifer. And I look forward to connecting with you very soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much. All right. Bye now. Bye. I'm enormously grateful to Jennifer for being a guest on our podcast this week. I don't know about you, but I certainly learned a lot and have taken away a number of things to reflect on. Please feel free to reach out to Jennifer. She is an exceptional executive coach and a leader in this field. Check out the show notes for ways to get in touch with Jennifer, and I'll look forward to connecting with you during our next episode. Take care.